The following program contains disturbing content that may be in settings and situations similar to your own. Discretion is advised. America's heartland, flyover country, shaking dice at the cafe for morning coffee, crop prices and rainfall, a day's work for a day's pay, business conducted on a handshake, where a man is as good as his word, church socials, town team baseball. But as the sun sets on this piece of Americana, there is no immunity from the darkness. There are things dare not spoken, and thoughts recessed in the corner of a man's mind, masked by the roar of a summer thunderstorm, hidden in the silence of winter snow, yet peering from the darkness in the shadows of the Midwest. Interstate 90, the longest interstate highway in the United States, stretching over 3,000 miles and passing through some 13 states, from Boston to Seattle. 275 of those miles crossed through southern Minnesota. It had its beginnings in 1957 and reached its golden spike moment some 20 years later. On September 23, 1978, a celebration took place after the paving of the last four miles outside of Blue Earth, Minnesota. East would finally meet West. There were some 2,500 people in attendance, including several federal and state officials, and even Miss America. The community also debuted their 56-foot-high fiberglass statue of the Jolly Green Giant. A new efficient corridor for commerce and travel. Much like the railroads of the past, Interstates brought prosperity to some communities and impoverishment to others. And like those railways moving vagabonds across the country, interstates provided an efficient way for new transients to move. Some seeking dreams of a new beginning and others seeking victims. This is Shadows of the Midwest, Season 1, Secrets of County Ditch Number 5, Episode 2, a freeway of possibilities. On May 30th, 1980, the minds of Americans were focused on the aftermath of the Mount St. Helens eruption as we entered into the seventh month of what was known as the Iranian hostage crisis. While they escaped to Funky Town and laughed through Caddyshack, the slasher genre was brought to the cinematic forefront with Friday the 13th lest we forget the murderous husband and father, Jack Torrance, hacking his way through the bathroom door in The Shining. Meanwhile, the heartland of America had, while unnoticed, its own unsettled times. In the days after the discovery of our Jane Doe, investigator Jerry Cabe from the Faribault County Sheriff's Office and agents Bob Berg and Michael O'Gorman of the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension began to work the few leads they had. Some of the first calls were made to area agencies in regards to the religious organization, commonly known as the Hare Krishna, with the thoughts that the victim's shaved head may have been for religious purposes. The investigators found that contact was limited and believed the organization may have moved closer to Chicago. It was also mentioned that the female members did not shave their heads. 
On June 1, 1980, the Minnesota State Patrol found a car abandoned off the westbound lane of I-90 near the Minnesota-South Dakota border. It was driven off the roadway and hidden from the view of normal traffic. The exact location was near the Beaver Creek exit on I-90, approximately two miles from the South Dakota border. The 1973 Ford Maverick with Arkansas plates was confirmed stolen from Rogers, Arkansas. Found in the vehicle, a pair of sandals, articles of food, a bank bag from Owensboro, Kentucky, and a Worthington, Minnesota newspaper dated May 24th. In the trunk of the vehicle, investigators found several items of women's clothing along with plates and cups. The investigators contacted Bentonville Police Department, who registered the vehicle as stolen. Officers stated that the driver of the stolen vehicle was a Charles Turney. Turney also used the last name of Connor and had previously lived in the Winona, Minnesota area. Turney has several warrants for parole violations and is believed to be accompanied by his wife, Ray. Family members feel that she is traveling against her will and that her life may be in danger. After examining the vehicle, Agent Berg determined that the women's clothing in the vehicle would not have fit our victim. A few weeks later, a rural Martin County resident reported that his son and some of his friends found some odd items in an expansion joint under the County Road 7 bridge that crossed I-90. The boys spotted a piece of styrofoam wedged into an opening. When they removed it, they discovered a golden white striped pullover sweater along with a Texas ID card. The name on the ID card was a Fidencia de Parada of Glasgow Street in Dallas, Texas. Dallas police followed up at the given address and none of the current residents were familiar with that party. In mid-July, a 24-year-old Janice Burt was reported missing after she failed to show up for work in St. James, Minnesota. Her body was discovered on August 22nd west of Grand Rapids. She too had been strangled. Mark Jensen of Ellendale, Minnesota was charged with first-degree murder and a James Elvin of St. James with accessory to murder. Both men were later convicted. At 11.15 a.m. on March 15, 1980, the body of 15-year-old Jill Annette Peters was discovered by a farmer in rural Dubuque County, Iowa. The body was nude, with the exception of a pair of socks which were rolled down around her ankles. The victim was last seen on May 24, 25 miles away in Bellevue, Iowa. She was walking to a school event at a local park about a mile and a half from her home. Subsequent reports state that she was seen talking to an Hispanic male on the road going to the park. On June 4, 1980, police arrested Albert Lara Jr. He was located at Veterans Administration Hospital in Knoxville, Iowa. Authorities found a 1972 metallic green two-door Mercury in the parking lot. Searching the vehicle, police found items from the victim and numerous items of women's clothing. There were several sets of latent prints that did not belong to Lara or the victim. The Georgia Bureau of Criminal Investigation advised the owner of the vehicle left Dalton, Georgia, accompanied by Lara and an unknown male, en route to Fort Knox, Kentucky. The details of the vehicle theft itself were unknown.
Lara stated he had worked a short stint with a carnival in Rockford, Illinois, before entering Iowa on May 14, 1980. Lara confessed to the murder and sexual assault of Jill Peters. During his confession, he made mention of several other homicides and sexual assaults. September 1970, Lara described shooting a man named Dave in the chest near the Hollywood Bowl. The motive being the man was gay. Two weeks later, Laura admitted himself into the Patton Veterans Administration Hospital. December 1973, Laura stated he was arrested in Duluth, Minnesota for rape and attempted strangulation. After being released, he met a Native American male at the Cozy Bar. The two did heroin together and stated he intentionally overdosed the male. Laura went on to state that in the first two months of 1973, he picked up two young women in the area of Winona, Minnesota that he believed were college students. He stated they were picked up separately, but on the same evening. He advised that he raped and strangled both women and assumed they were dead. Shortly after, he checked himself into the St. Cloud Veterans Hospital. He confessed to the staff, who did not believe his story, and eventually released him. In March of 1974, he recalled stabbing a man near downtown Portland, again because he was gay. Laura once again admitted himself into a VA hospital. Laura went on to tell about shooting two men in a drug deal gone bad in West Nyack, New York in December of 1974. In early 1975, he stated he severely beaten an elderly man near the Colorado border while traveling from Las Vegas. Laura confessed to some 30 sexual assaults that he could not recall specific details on. As mentioned in the previous episode, R. Jane Doe was eliminated as the subject of two Twin Cities area kidnappings. One of those was the kidnapping of Mary Stauffer and her eight-year-old daughter, Beth, on May 16, 1980, in Arden Hills, Minnesota. Ming Sen Shu told Stauffer he was a former student and was upset over a poor grade he was given in a math class. Shu abducted the pair outside of an Arden Hills business and forced them into the trunk of his car. Shortly after, Shu was forced to pull to the side of the road to quiet the pair. While doing so, he struck the curiosity of two young boys. Shu managed to grab one of the boys and placed him in the trunk with the Stauffers. He proceeded to drive to the Carlos Avery Wildlife Management Area, where he removed six-year-old Jason Wilkman from the car and bludgeoned him to death. After nearly seven weeks, Stauffer and her daughter eventually escaped Shu's Roseville home. A passerby notified authorities who came to find Stauffer and her daughter chained together with a steel cable in the front yard of Shu's house. On May 28th of 1980, Deborah Burke was on the phone with a friend when there was a knock on the front door of her South Minneapolis apartment. She ended the phone call saying, he's here. That was the last that anyone had heard from Deborah or her 10-year-old daughter Susan at the time. The he she was referring to was Donald Wayne Gustafson. A mutual friend had connected Burke with Gustafson to help her move. By June 1st, the mother and daughter had found themselves in a battered cabin on the outskirts of Hibbing, Minnesota. Gustafson woke Deborah and Susan that morning and sat on a cot across from him. 
He placed the barrel of a 22 rifle against his head and asked Deborah to pull the trigger. She complied. The pair were able to escape the cabin and were found alongside the road by a passing motorist. Deborah was not charged in the death of Gustafson. And as a side note, Gustafson was paroled in 1977 after the beating death of his wife Judy in 1971. On March 30th of 1980, a Eugene Wilson, 25, of Pulaski, Arkansas, and a Mickey Arrington, 27, of Kansas City, Missouri, abducted two Minneapolis women after a late-night party. The two women were held in the trunk of a car until they reached Eau Claire, Wisconsin. They were eventually released in Jersey City, New Jersey, where the pair abducted two more women. Wilson was eventually convicted and sentenced to 25 years, running concurrently with another kidnapping sentence in Ohio. Arrington was given a life term for the kidnapping in Minnesota that would run concurrent with a life term in Ohio. The late 1970s and early 1980s saw a boom in prostitution and human trafficking. Minnesota made up one end of what was called the Prostitution Pipeline. The most notorious outlet was an area of Manhattan's 8th Avenue between 42nd and 57th Street, which became known as the Minnesota Strip. There are several stories of how these young women became entangled in prostitution, and most ended in narcotics and abuse. Some lured by promises, others taken by force which will bring us to one last event before we wrap things up. On June 8, 1980, staff from the Bell Motel in Fairmont spoke with police in reference to a man using the name Don Patino who had skipped out on his motel bill. On May 28, a housekeeper entered the room to clean. She stated that in her 16 years working in motels, she had never seen a room left in the condition she found room 220 in. She stated when she entered the room, she found matchbooks and burnt matches covering the floor and Kleenex tissue scattered about the room. When she entered the bathroom, she noted blood on the sink, between the sink and the mirror, on and above the toilet, and on the edge of the shower substantially more than someone who had cut themselves shaving. She also noted that the blood above the sink and toilet seemed to have had finger tracks through it. There was also clumps of hair found in the sink in strands that appeared to be about four inches long. A housekeeper that had entered the room the previous day noted that she found the toilet clogged, all the garbage cans full, and papers strewn about the room and also Polaroid pictures that covered the bed and floor. She had no desire to see what the pictures contained. On June 10th, two women from Fairmont contacted the police after hearing about the murdered woman near Blue Earth. On June 3rd, the women were drinking in the Holiday Inn's hotel bar. They noticed two men walk in at approximately the same time, both carrying duffel bags. One of the women eventually spent time talking with one man who stated he was an entertainer who used the stage name D.D. Dillon, whose real name was Don Gattino. In an attempt to impress her, Gattino stated that he was one of the first members of the Playboy Club in 
presented a card with his name and the number 85 on it. At around the same time, the second woman struck up a conversation with the other duffel bag carrying man. He identified himself as Larry Lowry from St. Cloud, Minnesota, who was staying at the Holiday Inn while he was in town on insurance business. It was of curious note that the men had similar duffel bags, entered the bar together, but sat at different tables. We will discuss more about D.D. Dillon, a.k.a. Don Gatino, in upcoming episodes. And thank you for listening to Shadows of the Midwest. You can reach out to us with comments or questions at shadowsofthemidwest at gmail.com. Be sure to check our Facebook page and YouTube channel for further in-depth information. Please like and share this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Shadows of the Midwest is written and produced by Joe Kistner for Just Past Nowhere Productions, LLC, 2023. Additional music provided by Matt Webb in the Hutchinson Effect. 